the feeling of sorrow yes. is familiar. Hey, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is a show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get to know who they really were. Unrelentingly, week after week, we do this show for the people. Despite the ills of the world, despite the chaos that surrounds us, famine or flood or pandemic, or 2020 election results. Nevertheless, we persist. We persist, yes. <laughs> yeah. So if you're listening, you are on the other side of the 2020 initial end of voting and beginnings of election results. And you are either pining for the days before you knew mm-hmm. or looking back on us with anticipation for our joy. So we're just going to pretend like it's both. Yeah, we're going to party like it's 2008. Yes. <laughs> the last time I felt joy. Oh, is that is that what it was? Keep I mean, that was a good election year. That one felt good. Yeah, that was a good one. We're just gonna we're gonna keep rolling with this party. We are, yeah. Speaking of feeling joy, I haven't in years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't say. Oh yeah. Despite how peppy I sound on this podcast every week, uh it's all an act. Yeah. Oh, totally fake. Deeply, deeply Full of despair. I do this podcast just so I can get to know this person you are for one hour every week. And one it's a, hour. It's a real joy. It, it really is. Yes. So speaking of deep despair as a personality trait, <laughs> <laughs> we were recently watching uh, The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Yes. And mm-hmm. what I did not remember having watched this as a kid was just how dark some of it is for a kid's show. It's so dark. And it inspired this week's episode. This week's episode? What is this week's episode? Well, this week, our hero is Charles Schultz. What do you know about Charles Schultz? I know he is Mr. Peanuts himself. Although I take, uh, just to clarify, he is not Mr. Peanut himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be confusing. It could be. Mr. Peanut is also dead. Yeah, well, now there's, like, Baby Peanut, Yeah, which is so much worse. <laughs> so much worse. Yeah, didn't they launch it with a Baby Nut campaign? I, ooh, you know, maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't follow nuts that closely yeah. anywhere in my life. So... That said... The feeling of sorrow... Yes. ...is familiar when you watch any Charlie Brown special. Yes. But in response to your question, mm-hmm. outside of this general feeling of melancholy and the Christmas tree cartoon, that's mm-hmm. basically all I know. I have, I know nothing about Charles Schultz's life. I think you'll realize as we talk about Charles Schultz, anything that you know about Charlie Brown is familiar in the story or like the narrative of Charles Schultz's life. But... Um, Yeah, he was an interesting fellow. So let's chat about him. Let's do it. Okay. Born November 26th, 1922. Makes him a Sagittarius. Do you know any Sagittariuses? Mm, I can't say I do. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter. You probably don't know one born November 26th. That's probably true. But now it's time for Audrey's Astrology Corner slash Hour. I always forget which one we use. Hour? 
I think it's corner. Corner. The astrology part does not last the whole hour, despite what the listeners request, and we will never cave. Okay. Well, here's a good time to cue the music. A Sagittarius born on November 26th is achievement-oriented and likes to do things their way. They can use practical means to bring about seemingly impractical goals. They seem hot-headed and stubborn, but this doesn't come from ego, but from innocent self-confidence. They believe their way is the best way. Well, I got to tell you, if uh, astrology is true, then Charlie Brown certainly seems like one of the most confident people I've ever met. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It's that innocent (laughs) self-confidence. Yes. You know, I'm starting to have my doubts about this whole thing. Mm, Not today. (laughs) Not today. Today is a very complex day for a lot of folks emotionally. Sure. Sure. Give this to them. Let us have this one win. Some of us only feel joy occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) Revel in it. Revel in it. He's an only child. He was born in Minneapolis. His father was a barber. His mother was a homemaker. He was exceptionally close with his mother. And um, throughout his childhood, he was known as Sparky. So if you ever read any biographies or see any like little docuseries. He's constantly referred to as Sparky, just a nickname his uncle gave him and it stuck. Okay. He had a proclivity for drawing from a young age. He created this sort of like mythos about himself that he was a loner child who didn't have any friends and nobody really wanted to hang out with him. That would match with the Charlie Brown theory. Right. But by all accounts, that was not his childhood at all. Really? No. He might have felt that like as an adult and then projected it onto this child. But he he also spoke of feeling like he was a lonely child who didn't have friends. But he had numerous friends. He was really smart. He skipped some grades in, in school. His teachers referred to him as, quote, exceptional. And um, he, yeah, he didn't have any sort of like social troubles. I'm already starting to doubt this guy. Right. Well, I I think he might have had a bit of self-confidence issues. (laughs) So he might have remembered the past differently. So when he was 18, he's drafted into the army, as was want to happen in 1940. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Around the same time, he learned that his mother, who had been sick for years, melancholic throughout his teenage years, he learned that she actually had cancer. And she had had cancer this whole time. She knew, her fa- uh, her husband knew, his father knew, but they never told... They just didn't tell him? They didn't tell Sparky. How old is he? So he's 18 now, and he only finds out because he's drafted to the army. And as he's leaving, his father is basically like, hey, your mom is very sick. And you need to come home every weekend that you can. So he comes home one weekend after basic training, and she is on her deathbed, like very sick. And he's about to leave. He has to go back on Monday or whatever. And she says, hey, it's probably the last time I'll see you. I Like, we need to say goodbye. And he kind of brushes it off. But he gets on the train and she dies the next day. Brushes it off? Yeah. I mean, he had lived for so many years thinking his mom was kind of sick, but not. They kept all of the severity of it from him. And I'm sure he had this sort of like denial about how serious it was because he didn't you know, he's leaving. He doesn't want to have to deal with that. Sure. Yeah. This fucks him up 
pretty good. I imagine. I imagine so. <laughs> so he serves his time in the army and he comes back home. He, at this point, his father's living in an apartment above his barber shop. He moves back in with his dad. He's kind of just digging around, drawing, taking a correspondence course with an art institute. And his dad starts asking his friends, like his 20-year-old friends, hey, do you think Charles will ever amount to anything? Because this seems like no. He has no ambition and he's just sad all the time. Wait, he's shit-talking him to his friends? Like to his son's friends? Yes. Not the dad's friends? No, no, no. To Sparky's friends. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Fortunately, during this time that he is taking this correspondence course, he's actually doing pretty well. So he takes his class because he does not want his art to be critiqued in front of him. Kind of like Walt Disney, right? At the same time. Thin-skinned. Thin-skinned, but... You know, he's an artist, creative, it's vulnerable. He didn't seem to have a lot of (laughs) resiliency built up. Um, But he ends up learning a lot, and eventually he becomes a grader for this company. It's called Art Instruction, Inc., and he's a grader for cartoonists. Like people go and do these courses by mail. Yep, and he sends back critiques and notes, and he's pretty good at it. Okay, okay. Got a big group of friends at this point. He's in his mid-20s. He's very popular at Art Instruction, Inc. This is where he meets a lot of people who will later go on to be characters in the Peanuts comic strip. Oh, they're based off real people. Yes. Originally called uh, Lil Folks. It's... uh, Wait, originally called Lil Folks? Lil Folks. L-I-L. L apostrophe I-L. Folks. Uh Ah. Little folks. This is where Charlie Brown is developed. A sort of prototype of Snoopy enters the picture. Honestly, I kind of like little folks better. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, But so Charlie Brown is actually not named after Charles Schultz himself. There was an actual man at Art Instruction, Inc. called Charlie Brown. Oh, really? Yes. Who uh, Sparky models Charlie Brown after. He has a friend named Linus, and he makes this Linus character. And there's this uh, character in Peanuts for all the Peanuts aficionados out there called the Little Red-Haired Girl. And this is this unrequited love of Charlie Brown's. Mm -hmm. It's named after this woman that that Charles Schultz, Sparky, met and fell in love with. Her name was Donna May. She's an, account- an accountant at Art Instruction, Inc. And they go steady for a while. They're dating. It's like 1950. He's mm-hmm. 28. He's ready to, like, got his life together. Single, ready to mingle. Mm-hmm. He, in 1950, is able to get little folks syndicated. So he it's in a few newspapers. He has some success. Wow. Right? He proposes to Donna May, and she turns him down and is like, no, I can't marry you because I've also been dating this other man named Al. And my mom likes Al better because Al has red hair like me. And I think it's just like a better match. Oh, Donna tells this to him. Yes. And is just like, oh, no, my mom prefers the the other gingers. Yes. Yikes. Right? So this cranks up the bummer machine way high. Yeah. A oh. few times, Charles actually comes back to Donna and is like, did you change your mind? Oh, that's that's rough. Know, that's real rough. I know. And she's like, no. I think the rich part about this is that he's there begging this woman who rejected him multiple times. And he has the audacity to name the main character after somebody else pathetic. Like, he's like, 
you know, I'll tell you who's really the sad zap in the office, this Charlie Brown character. Right. (laughs) Right. And it's interesting because this little red-haired girl, Donna, he actually maintains a friendship with her throughout his life, whereby multiple times when his various other relationships are failing, he'll call her up and be like, let's just, on this phone call, reminisce about the days we were in love. Let's just talk about it. Oh, man. This is depressing. It's very depressing. (laughs) Anyway, he very quickly thereafter meets and marries this woman named Joyce. And it's kind of scandalous because Joyce has already has a daughter and no one in Sparky's social circle likes Joyce. Oh. They hit it off right away. So they get married um, by all accounts, they have a pretty good marriage. They have four kids together. They move around a bit from Minneapolis to Colorado to Minneapolis, then on to California. His fame is rising. So Little Folks has gone from Little Folks Syndicate to Peanuts Syndicated, growing in um, popularity. Getting that nationally syndicated cartoon money now. He is. I mean, for real, though. There's very few folks who are doing this. At the time, it's like Dick Tracy, um, Archie Comics, and like Charles Schultz is is coming in hot. Wow, and, big three. Right. And compared to these other two comics, it's a very simplified visual aesthetic. The storylines are boring. <laughs> There's yes, no drama yes. It's just kind of this wallowing. And in post-war America, where people didn't really have a language for expressing their emotions, they can see this comic. And it's not, you know, it's not like sobbing, huge, big emotions. It's just kind of like, uh, what's the point? This undercurrent of depression and, you know, nihilism that's like, you know, right under the surface. Absolutely. So... He is doing this. His wife, Joyce, is actually the character Lucy in the Peanuts comics. Mm. By all accounts, Joyce is bossy and she has a big vision for life. She is stern, but just wildly optimistic. Like she Lucy believes... Lucy being the one who always is like pulling the football yes. away. Okay. Yes. This is his wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got it. Indeed. And... But she has, like, this big vision. Anything's possible. She's in control. She can make whatever happen happen. And she does. So they move to California. She takes the lead. She's like, I'm going to build you this studio. They build Charles Schultz's studio. They buy this big plot of land, and they build a compound on it. So they build a home, a studio, tennis courts, mini golf course thing. They're making compound money off this thing? Oh, they're making compound money. A lake, a stable, horses. They build their own film studio before, or like, um, where it's screenings. Friends can come watch movies in this big kiosk of, you know, couches and a film screen. Man, why didn't I go into art? That's where the money is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For all, all folks. Yeah, right? exactly. If you take anything away from this, it's that that is where you make your fortunes, people, doing comic strips. Indeed. There's this documentary on PBS made about him based on this other biography book written about him, but whatever. In this documentary, the kids talk about how it is essentially a simplified Disneyland. Anything any kid could ever want is at this place. They have free run of this huge compound. They have dirt bikes. 
They have animals. They they basically just like don't have boundaries also. Charles Schultz is also getting pretty into religion at this point. After Donna May broke his heart, he got into Church of God, which is like a community of pretty, I don't want to say evangelical because it's not evangelical, but it's um, standard Christian religion. It's a Protestant denomination. It's a Protestant denomination. Yeah. Um, And he got really into it, found a lot of community there. And one thing that I hadn't really realized until doing this research was just how at times religious the Peanuts comics are. Did you did you ever take that away? I, I don't know if you even like Snoopy. No, I mean, like I, I, I got to say, I was not a big reader of the Peanuts strip back in the 40s in the first run. And then <laughs> since then, I haven't revisited the original source material that often. Okay. Uh, I didn't get a ton of religious vibes from the other, like Christmas mm-hmm. and, you know, Halloween specials. But uh, right. yeah, it doesn't stick out in my mind as a super religious thing. Yeah, they're subtle, but they are there. Schultz makes ultimately almost 18,000 Peanuts newspaper strips. 18,000? Yes. Almost 600 of them contain religious or spiritual or theological reference. And for context, Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown, 61 comic strips. So so the football pulling away is what it's like a, a, one of the famous images, but mm-hmm. there's like eight times as many... Bible references or whatever. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, not the thing that I would associate with it. Right. I mean, so you mentioned the Christmas special. It was actually pretty controversial at the time because I don't know if you remember this, but at the end of the original one, Linus reads the actual story of Jesus's birth. Yeah, it's a nativity scene and everything. Mm -hmm. And at the time, fewer than 9% of Christmas episodes contained any religious reference. Interesting. I mean, they're all like Santa Claus and... Uh, Rudolph is so sad. Everybody's meeting yeah, Rudolph. I guess so. Yeah, it doesn't. I guess it doesn't stick out in like uh, as anything, uh, you know, in your face today. But yeah, if, if it was unique at the time, then interesting. Yeah, and it, it's not even in your face at the time. It is subtle but persistent. In one ep- or one episode, <laughs> one strip, Sally, you might know Sally. She says a pledge of allegiance, and at the end of it. She stands on her desk and yells, Amen, which is like a very strange thing to do. Okay, yeah, that, that feels more like a gag as yeah. opposed to <laughs> religious overtones. But of this religion in his work, Schultz said, quote, I preach in these cartoons and I reserve the same rights to say what I want to say as the minister in the pulpit. Really? Preaching? Yeah. There's a really interesting story about Schultz and his religion. It's an Atlantic article. And it, it kind of makes it seem like over time, his beliefs softened. He quotes a lot of Bible verses in some of these cartoons. And they're always almost in a funny way compared to a lot of the other stuff he says. So there's one strip where Charlie Brown catches Snoopy uh, like stealing food from the refrigerator. And he quotes the Ten Commandments. And then Snoopy quotes back to him like... Don't muzzle the ox when it takes the grain or something. <laughs> okay, okay. Like, okay, we see you, Snoopy. Do your thing. Yeah. It's not quite the sermon I was expecting, but okay. Right. 
Anyway, so he's into religion. He's married. He's got five kids because his wife had one. They've got four. They're making bank. They live in California. He's living that good Christian, you know, gospel of prosperity, fabulously wealthy. Yes. Got it going. Got it made, honestly. And this makes him a huge celebrity in the 60s. Really? He and his family are on the cover of Life magazine. They're like playing touch football. They're doing tours of the house. Wait, the, Peanuts guy was like a celebrity? Like a celebrity celebrity. Wow. During this time, he also ends up winning from some organization a Father of the Year award. And his kids, when they think back to this time, were like, that's really fucked up because <laughs> he was like never around. He hung out with us for photo shoots and then he <laughs> Wait, was like what? always in the studio. Yes. He's taking care of his kids. They get whatever they want. His wife is getting whatever she wants. They basically just like run the compound though and he didn't give a shit about them. He does not give a shit. He does not know how to discipline them. He is not there regularly. They say they just like don't interact with him for days at a time. And at the same time that this is happening, there's also like this small television crew that follows him around for like a docu-series, like a 60 Minutes or, you know, Dateline special, whatever. Yeah. And this documentary crew films him running carpool where he like drives up and down the street and takes his kids and picks up other kids and then like drops them off at school. In this later documentary that shows a snippet from this original documentary, the groundskeeper was like, no, he never did that. I ran carpool. I was their gardener, and I was in charge of carpool. <laughs> He's like, literally just doing it for the cameras. Just doing it for the cameras. Yeah, and it's not to say he was, like, abusive or a terrible father. He just, like, was not around. And the kids know it. So they start going wild. They, you know, at some point, like, taunt the police by riding their dirt bikes on the street in front of them and then, like, dipping off into their private <laughs> property. <laughs> they have no boundaries. Charles Schultz starts to brag to people. It, like, one friend is like, okay, so I look at this huge house. Like, how much money do you make? And he was like, would you be impressed if someone made a million dollars? And this woman was like, you made a million dollars last year? And he was like, no, I made a million dollars last month. Oh, just <clears throat> suck on that. Suck yeah. On that. In today's money? Oh, uh, we're at the 60s? Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you this. Okay, fast math. Uh, I would say $12 million a year is roughly 120 to $150 million a year. Okay, not quite. So he was making like $8.5 million a month. Oh, uh, okay. So then he's making 100000 100, Yeah, 10, like, a, like $100 million. $100 million. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's a lot of money for a cartoonist in yes. the 1960s Holy to shit. be making. Yes. I almost made $100 million this year as well, but I decided not to publish my cartoons. Oh, and, right. Uh, You're doing this instead. Yeah. I'm regretting that decision now looking back on it. Sure. Yeah. But at least you get to see your wife smile one hour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Makes it all worthwhile. Um, speaking of wife, this amount of success starts to take a toll on his marriage. Okay, and pause, because this was like the wife's idea. He was doing well, but not like this. And she was like, we are going to churn this machine. And like, she was behind the compound, right? she wasn't. So what she did, and this is where her resentment built up, was she said, whatever you want to do, I will support you. We can't do it here in Minneapolis. Let's go to California. Okay. And she essentially 
makes it so that he can do this singular thing. Mm, but she enables this life. Yes. She manages the household and their businesses and, you know, like domestic things. So she's at this point a bit resentful. He's gone in the studio working all the time. Doesn't even talk to his kids for days on end. Right. Basically never says thank you to his wife. He gets all this attention from the press. Always makes it really about him and his success. Never like, hey, this is Joyce and our five children that she looks after. He literally got a Father of the Year award while faking the carpool that the gardener actually does. Yes. Yes. yes, Okay. Yes. Yes. So by the late 60s, his marriage is obviously starting to show some cracks. They're struggling with one another and it is noticeable to other people. The children talk about how they fought all the time. Uh, Their friends talk about how they never even saw them hug or kiss or even, like, speak fondly of one another. Hmm. There were dinner parties where people would go home and they'd say to their spouse, oh, my God, I'm so glad I'm not married to him. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not married to her. And it was like a whole thing. Like, at least we're not the Schultzes. Okay. Right? So they're struggling. Their kids are running wild. They end up sending three of them to a boarding school in Switzerland. Switzerland. Yes, because one of them is bad, but they don't want that one to be lonely, so they make the oh, other no. two go. <laughs> oh, that's some that's some grade A level uh, resentment you build up right there. That is. Why am I being sent to boarding school? Because your brother sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's really your sister, but yeah. Okay, your sister sure. sucks. Yeah. And then he starts fucking a 25 year old. Ah, ah. Uh. Not great for um. For the relationship, probably? The relationship, the Christian in his in his heart. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important right now just because affairs are a thing that happen in relationships. This is not to be like, he's a terrible person because he made this one choice. They can, they happen to a lot of people. A lot of times they can be generative for a relationship. Monogamy is defined differently in different relationships. This is not one of those cases. Yeah, this is him saying that he treats his comic strip like a pulpit that the preacher would use. Mm-hmm. And his wife resenting him already. Yeah. And him just stepping out. And then him stepping out. Yes. So this is a traditional case of you are fucking someone else and betraying our marriage vows. <laughs> and I'm at home with your shitty children <laughs> building you a mini golf course because you want one. <laughs> and you're never home so he and his wife go to therapy but after two or three sessions sparky says he doesn't want to go because he's worried that it will quote hurt the comic strip wait what the therapy would hurt his comics yeah if he exercises his demons in a real healthy productive way how can he put them on paper so his wife is like fuck you and they separate fun fact For whatever reason, because this is a scrawny man, but for whatever reason, he could not get his wedding ring off and had to have someone come cut it off his hand. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Okay. So his marriage is in shambles. He literally, given the choice, his wife is like, it's the comic strip or me. He's like, oh, definitely the comic strip. Yes. And this 25-year-old named Tracy. Okay. Okay. All of this is, of course, detailed in Peanuts. No way. Yes, but in this very, like, surreptitious way where it's, you know, 
Charlie Brown self-flagellating over the fact that he like self-sabotages everything good in his life. <laughs> and he's worried that God stopped loving him because he's, you know, not a perfect person. Oh, man. It really is his therapy. It is. Double fun fact. A few years ago, somebody stumbled across 44 love letters that Charles had written to Tracy, his young lover. And they were sold at auction for $350,000. And not a lot is known of all of these letters, but there is this little excerpt that was pulled out as marketing to show that this was actually in the Peanuts comic strip. In two letters from 1970, Schultz writes that he must stop calling Tracy because his long-distance phone calls to her had been discovered by his wife. And very soon after... He created a a strip in which Charlie Brown berates Snoopy for his obnoxious behavior when he's not allowed to go, quote, see that girl, Beagle. And then in subsequent panels, Charlie warns Snoopy that, quote, you'd better start behaving yourself. And when Snoopy picks up the telephone, Charlie yells from the other room and stop making those long distance phone calls. Yikes. He just puts it all out there. (laughs) Isn't it so creepy? (laughs) It is. He's like. Yes. Let me just, uh, yeah, like tell the world of exercise my my demons and my shame from this extramarital affair by by making it about this dog. Yeah. Right. (laughs) By like imbuing my storyline into a dog. Yeah. It's very it's very weird. Yeah. There's a bit of commentary about the role of Charlie Brown and Snoopy as sort of the two different sides of Sparky. One is the, like, this is the outward Charlie Brown. I'm sad. And Snoopy is. Is his alter ego? Oh my this, god! This like fantastical <laughs> hero who drives a plane and goes to space and the travels is, the world. The dog is his self-image. Like is, the dog is his is like his most heroic self. Wow! Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. And I didn't mention this at the top of the hour because I've already overshared too much. But Snoopy was my jam as a kid. Yes, you were super into Snoopy. Super into Snoopy. Had like hundreds of Snoopy dolls and trinkets, and like still have one. Loved Snoopy. Hate that I know this about him. (laughs) Yeah. It really makes me question all of the non-returnable Snoopy gifts that I've gotten you for Christmas this year. (laughs) Uh, Really puts a different light on them. Well, you know what? There are a lot of non-refundable Snoopy gifts. It's a billion dollar a year license. Really? Yes. Still a billion dollars a year? Charles Schultz is actually the third most profitable dead celebrity. What? Michael Jackson, Charles Schultz. No way. Yes. Snoopy Snoopy does bank. That's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so back to this girlfriend he has. After he divorces Joyce, he tries to propose to Tracy multiple times. And she's like, no, actually, I, I don't want it to be that serious. You, I've come to learn, are essentially a man-child. Yes. And yes. I don't want to take care of you like that. So they break up. He ends up meeting this woman within a year named Jean. Goes by Jeannie. Roundabout story. He meets her at the ice skating rink that he and his first wife, Joyce, built for the city of Santa Rosa. Oh, wow. Municipal ice rink. they had so much money and they missed ice skating in Minneapolis. They literally just didn't know what to do with themselves. Right. He's kicked out of the compound, doesn't have a studio anymore, yeah. works at the ice rink. Got a <laughs> studio there. Sees Jeannie skating with her kid and is like, hey, can we get some coffee? 
very, very quickly they get married. I mean, he's making a hundred million dollars a year. <laughs> I don't blame her. <laughs> I mean, I kind of get the sense that he can't be alone. Yes. He's really struggling with some things that require the attention of women who dote on him. Yeah. Yeah. But unlike his past relationship where the doting was like, do, 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 I'm going to take care of this. He apparently really takes charge in this relationship. He's like making up for lost time. He is now Snoopy. He's no longer (laughs) Charlie Brown. (laughs) Living his truest self. And as his fame sort of continues to grow, because it just, it doesn't like not peak. He it's still so popular by the time he dies, right? He's getting more popular. This is right? bonkers to me. 50 yeah. years. So at this point, it's the 80s. It's the 90s. He's in his 60s. They are able to license Snoopy. This is when it happens. This is when you see, like, Snoopy at Worlds of Fun. You see Snoopy with um, Russell Stover chocolate. Snoopy watches and pins. And at first, it kind of goes bananas. Like, there's no artistic approval from Charles Schultz required in the licensing deals. Just send money, we send you a snoop. Yes. Ends up going very, very poorly. And so if you have your hand on any of these like real jank Snoopy products, <laughs> you actually have the rare stuff. The collectibles are actually like the Snoopy potato mashers or whatever. Yeah, whatever they are. But within 12 months, he renegotiates the contract and he becomes hyper controlling. Every single thing that gets a license, he has to approve. And we're talking thousands of products a year on top of still creating a daily strip. Well, he does a strip daily this whole time. Yes. There's 18,000 of them over 50 years. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yikes. And this starts to wear on him in a way that he starts to behave professionally in a way that is maybe not um, in line with his good Christian heart anymore. He starts yelling at people, berating assistants. He turns in a strip to whatever that gets it out syndicated. And one of the assistant editors edits one piece of punctuation, like one comma. They remove like one comma. And he calls up and he makes his assistant cry for like an hour where he was like, you had no right to do this. This is like, you think you can do this better? And it's like this 20-year-old who's like, ah, just, I was copy editing. Was copy editing, right? So then he speaks to this this woman's boss, who's another woman, and he just like berates her for an hour and is like, you think you can do this? Why don't you go ahead? Are you the one who made Snoopy famous? If you didn't make Snoopy famous, don't you oh dare my touch God. my stuff. And it's like, dude, it's a comic strip and it's like a comma one time. Oh, man. But... Can you just imagine having to deal with somebody as part of your day-to-day life who mm-hmm. somehow justifiably this person, the m- most serious thing in their life was a cartoon dog. Like, just I like know, having to deal with somebody who's, who's like most important professional commitment right. is capturing the essence of this cartoon dog. Well, really, it, because it's it's like the only, it's his only insight into himself. He never like examines himself. He explicitly turns down the opportunity in exchange for writing this this dialogue. He does. And to further emphasize this, so outwardly, he's trying to regain all this control and assert it. Behind the scenes, his wife at the time, Jeannie, talks about how they would be traveling the world. You know, he's at a speaking engagement, at a conference, whatever. And he would wake up in the middle of the night in a panic attack and be like, why does anybody even like me? What am I doing? 
If I weren't rich and famous, would anyone like me? I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, because you're whiny. You yeah. you made $100 million a year being a whiny little bitch. No one would like that. Yeah. I mean, somehow he's able to capture this like zeitgeist in a way that like is somehow universal and shared and people can like, uh, you know, relate to doesn't mean they like him. But he never. Yeah, right. Like you can do that as a character and still like exercise it from your own being. Case this, study. OK. Kanye West. Oh, mm, no. <laughs> no. Kanye is never a good case study for anything. No. At I mean, this point. Yeah, but again, you can capture a zeitgeist. <laughs> sure. You can capture sure. a zeitgeist and, and still struggle. And have art that people really relate to mm-hmm. and still struggle and have nobody really like you at the end of the day. Right. At a certain point that struggle becomes indulgence. Like when you have the yeah. means for it to become yeah, indulgence. Once you once you have made your ten, twenty, hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. like then you are just feeding whatever your worst impulses were. You Absolutely. no longer exercise the demons, now you're feeding them. Right. So he's very clearly depressed and isolated. Don't want to hold that against him. But also, he has the resources to get help. Yeah. And instead, he's like wallowing and calling up old girlfriends and being like, hey, for one hour, can we pretend we're in love? Yikes. At this point, it's the 90s. His kids are grown. He's working all the time. He's like hanging out with his dog. Got a new dog, by the way. <laughs> oh, there we go. By the late 90s, he's very rapidly getting sicker. And his wife talks about the fact that he never went to the doctor, just didn't go unless he was very ill. And by the time he went, he was very ill. Late stage cancer, realizes it too late, ends up almost immediately in the hospital. Guests come to visit. Time after time after time, the guests who went to visit him bring up the fact that while they're visiting him on their last visit with Charles Schultz, he continues to say, like, why me? I was a good Christian. Why is God doing this to me? Seriously? Yes. <laughs> so it's just like a lifetime of why me? And yeah. it's like, because people get cancer, friend, because you didn't go to the doctor for a decade is why you. Yeah. And after you've made hundreds of millions of dollars from your cartoons, like mm-hmm. not not any kind of like self-reflection about like, oh, wow, how incredibly lucky I was to not be living in poverty doing my doodles. Right. Right. Then he has a stroke. Ah. After the stroke, he realizes this is the end. I'm going to make the last comic strip. So I remember this because it had a profound impact on me. You probably don't remember this because it would have meant nothing to you. That is correct. But in February, on February 12th, 2000, Charles Schultz died. His last strip that was pre-scheduled to be published ran February 13th. 2000. The day after he died. The day after he died, where he's saying goodbye. So this was like a big emotional, like, I cannot believe this happened. People did not realize it was a coincidence at the time. But it, you know, many months in advance, like, here are all the cartoons leading up to it. It's his last one. So he dies the day before his final comic strip. I remember this death. Uh, I cut out the comic strip and I saved it. Wow. It's a Sunday comic, so it was in color. Um, but apart from it being eerie, it was a relatively unmomentous death of a man at 78 who had cancer in his stroke. Um, like I said, he is still one of the most profitable dead celebrities. 
Snoopy and Peanuts are still licensed. We just watched the like Snoopy remake go into space. Yeah, yeah. Still the Peanuts st- movie. Making new cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, anyway, although I love Snoopy, Charles Schultz is not my hero. Yeah, I don't think I will ever read a Snoopy comic the same way. I mean, I remember being a kid and reading them and being like, this isn't funny. (laughs) These are not interesting. And it's not like I liked Peanuts for Peanuts. I like Snoopy because I like weird rascal dogs. Yes, you do. You you like dogs much more than any any other cartoon character. Yeah. I mean, and Snoopy is like, come on, what a scoundrel. Yes. So cool. But now that you know that he's only the id of a battle between this broken man's (laughs) id and ego. uh, Yeah. It feels gross. It does um, feel a little bit gross. All in all, a a broken, very human person who probably could have gotten some professional help that would have made him a better husband and father and friend. And he probably would have liked himself more. In the final interview before his death, he had already written the comic strip, the final one. And he went with on Al Roker, with Al Roker on whatever TV show, you know, like a 2020. Yeah, it's like an interview style, short snippet, like 10 minutes. And he said he got to the end, he wrote the final strip, and he realized how sad he was that Charlie Brown never got to kick the football. And people talk about how, like, dude, you were Charlie Brown. You could have kicked the football. (laughs) You could have realized that this entire time you were living a life where the football was in reach and you just kept pulling it out from under yourself and never believing you could kick it. And you kicked it this whole time. Had all the resources in the world to, like, change your life however you really wanted Mm -hmm. and still somehow, like, place it out of your own grasp. Yeah. So it's a bummer for him, but his art (laughs) lives on. If people would like for our art to live on. I'm sure they do after this (laughs) uplifting episode. (laughs) Where can they reach out and find us? On Instagram and Twitter at Your Heroes Pod. So at at Your Heroes Pod. And they can find us on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. They can rate, review us wherever they get their podcast. We still have so many stickers, so much swag. We would love to bring you a bit of joy during this tumultuous time. (laughs) Yes. If you could use some... We we would love to send things to you using the U.S. Postal Service, Mm -hmm. presuming it still exists at the time you've heard about this. Yes. And if you want some flair for your water bottle during the Civil War, let us know. We've got some stickers. Until next week... Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.